Rafer, I, I'm I'm just so glad that we're together at last. We're we're together forever. I I am too, Kristen. <laughs> I am too. Bet your bottom dollar. Oh, really? Yeah. I feel like you're talking about tomorrow, and you know what? We're I just am. talking about today and our struggles, our friendship, the hard knock life that we live through here. It is. It is a hard knock life. You know, instead of treated, we get kicked. You know, instead of kisses, we get kicked. Oh, that's right. Oh. I'm sorry. Let's go. We should back up. I, me- I messed that one up. No, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I messed that up. <laughs> that shows you what an Annie expert I am. Not one. But you are. I love Annie. I love Annie. I've seen Annie on stage several times. I've seen the movie starring Carol Burnett and everybody else who we don't care about many times. And Albert Finney. Come on. We care about Albert Finney. Yeah, I guess I care about Albert Finney. Jeez. <laughs> And I love it, and I always sob during the first 20 minutes of Annie. I just cry and cry and cry. And as listeners know, I love to cry. You certainly do. Well, <laughs> I'm very, I'll am i be very curious to see if you did any crying or any laughing or anything during the new Annie. But this is one of the, this is one of the big, big movies of this year. A lot of uh, anticipation, a lot of high hopes on Annie. We're going to talk about Annie. We'll talk about Night at the Museum, Secret of the Tomb. We'll also talk about the last Hobbit film, Battle of the Five Armies. And Good we'll talk. Riddance. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, Kristen, oh. don't spoil it. <laughs> and we'll also talk about a movie that you may or may not get to see, although we have the interview with Seth Rogen and James Franco. But first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The Takeaway. And this is Movie Date. All right, Kristen, let's start off with Night at the Museum, colon, Secret of the Tomb. Now, full disclosure, Rafer and movie daters, I have not seen any of the other Night at the Museum films. Oh, really? Yeah, and I believe this is the third one. Yeah, well, you're coming in in a little late. Fresh eyes, but I was still (laughs) able to follow things mostly. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You weren't totally confused. I don't think, well, I was at certain points. You weren't saying, why is Steve Coogan so small? Why is Owen Wilson so small? Okay, I did wonder about that. Mm. But I presumed that they were in small dioramas of things. Good. So in this movie, all the people and animals on exhibit are alive. There's T-Rex and Teddy Roosevelt and Genghis Khan and a bunch of other dudes because, yeah, this is a dude's movie and there's only one woman in it. There's Pocahontas. But they're alive, as I surmise they were in the other movies, but they are not going to be alive for much longer because the magical Egyptian tablet that keeps them alive is losing its power. The night guard at the museum, played by Ben Stiller, tries to repower the tablet, and along the way, they all end up at the British Museum. Here's a clip. How are we doing? All clear. All right, let's go. Larry, the others felt perhaps we could use some help. The others? Lawrence, I couldn't sit idly by. Our very survival is at stake. All right. Hey, Teddy, good. Good man having a crisis. Well, Kristen, I have seen the other two Night at the Museum films. I actually liked the first one quite a bit. I thought it was um, really cute. And actually, when this one came out, it reminded me that the first one would be a good one to show my kids. You know, it takes place at the American Museum of Natural History right here in New York, which is their favorite museum of all time. I'm sure they'd love to see, you know, T-Rex, the Rexy, the, the big giant skeleton who's essentially 
fearsome at first, but turns out to be just a real playful little puppy dog of a, of a T-Rex. I'm sure my kids would love that kind of stuff. The second film I thought was kind of so-so. You were talking about The Lack of Women. That, that film at least had Amy Adams as Amelia Earhart. And she was like a nice addition to the cast, I thought. Having not seen the other two, what did you think of this one, Kristen? Well, I felt that I probably should have been on board for the other ones because I feel that some of this film was built on the inertia and the love that you built up for the characters in the prior two movies because there's a lot of screwball, wacky stuff, but not much in the way of character development in this one. Sure. And I know maybe I'm asking for too much to have character development in a kid's movie, but I would have liked more of a foundation for why these relationships were so important and what's going on with Ben Stiller and his son, what's going on with Ben Stiller and Teddy Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt and Pocahontas. You know, it would have been nice to see more emotional depth with all of those things. Okay. Um, I will say that this movie, with its explorations of being alive versus not being alive, yeah, did feel really poignant because... A big speech is given by Teddy Roosevelt toward the end of the film yeah. where he more or less says, people don't come to the museum to see us alive. They come to see us so they can be inspired and that they can learn. And it doesn't matter if we're alive or dead. Right. And that's me paraphrasing. That's not word for word. And it just kind of hit me in the gut. I was thinking, this movie, my God, this movie could not have been more timely. And it's not yeah. just Robin Williams who has a posthumous performance here. It's also Mickey Rooney. Yes, very brief appearance from uh, Mickey Rooney, who also passed away this year. Yeah. Yeah. And so that really struck me. That really hit me. And and I did like that overall message of the film, despite Mm -hmm. all of its lack of character development. A lot of it felt frenetic. There's a lot of running around and chasing and running around and chasing. Yes. But I I did like that in the end, it did have that sense of heart that I I wanted. What about you, Rafer? Well, I felt that, you know, the movie doesn't really have a lot going on actually in it. And I mean, and well, I Chasing. should say, well, <laughs> actually, I guess I should say there's a lot going on, but it doesn't really, there's not much really involved. It's just, it's as you're saying, there's a lot of running around, a lot of padding. I think that the two additions to the cast this time around are Rebel Wilson, who plays um, a cop at the, a guard, I should say, at the British Museum. And her role is I don't know. I felt that that was one of these roles that just seemed like her kind of improving and ad-libbing and trying to be funny. And a lot of it didn't really strike me as that inspired or interesting. Uh, Jonah Hill in the last film had a somewhat similar role as a young kind of cocky, snarky security guard. This seemed like a little bit of a retread to me. And I wasn't that uh, thrilled with the addition of the other Ben Stiller character. There's another. Oh, there's another. He's a caveman. Yeah, he's a Neanderthal named La L with three A's, um, because that's sort of as much as he can say in, in, of uh, Larry's name, La. So they call him La. I didn't think that was that funny, but I have to admit, Robin Williams got to me, and I don't know if it's just because now he's gone. You know, the the thing about Robin Williams is it was very easy, I think, to get kind of irritated and exasperated by his whole smiling through tears routine because <laughs> he did that a lot you know these mm-hmm. patch adams dead poet society goodwill hunting kinds of roles which i always felt were a little could be a little treacly and i guess it's one of those cases where now that he's gone i just thought gee i wish he was around doing that some more because he really is good at it mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's great at it and yeah. teddy roosevelt and teddy roosevelt in this film is kind of a father figure to larry daly to ben stiller's character and so it has a little extra poignance to it so it got to me, but I can't really say that Secret of the Tomb is what I would call a good date. Oh, not a good date. No, so no, you agree. Not I a good date. I agree with you. Secret of the Tomb, 
it did hit me in the heart at the end, which I needed. At the end, But yeah. it didn't make up for the other 90% of the movie, which left me just wondering why am I sitting through this. Yeah, I kind of agree. And, you know, yeah, once again, kids' film, it's not going to be that entertaining for the parents. And that's – and, you know, it, it's not horrible. It is not a horrible movie by any means. I have definitely seen worse. But, again, you know, kind of middling to not so great day. Let's talk about another third movie in a series, Peter Jackson's Hobbit series. The newest is called The Battle of the Five Armies. Rafer, tell us about it. In this one, you still have the recurring cast members. Richard Armitage is Thorin Oakenshield, the Dwarf King. You still have Ian McKellen as Gandalf. Kate Blanchett as Galadriel. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And, of course, Martin Freeman as The Hobbit. I'm not sure how to quite sum this up because there's a lot going on in this film. No, there's not a lot going on. That's it's just not true. fighting. There, fighting, well, pausing, fighting, fighting, pausing. There's a little bit of a conflict about who owns this gold. Pausing, fighting. Are those elves on our side? Pausing, fighting, 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 pausing, pausing, fighting, and then more fighting. It is called Battle of the Five Armies. <laughs> You're going to have to have the five armies. So they do come. I, and I don't, now, to be honest, I kind of lost track of like what which all army five was which. were which. I know there's some orcs, some dwarves, some elves, some humans, and I wasn't quite sure if the fifth army. We're also dwarves. I was a little puzzled by that. But anyway, here's a clip. What do you think I'm trying to do? I think you're trying to save your dwarvish friends. And I admire your loyalty to them. But it does not dissuade me from my course. You started this, Mithrandir. You will forgive me if I finish it. Now, I thought this movie got off to a pretty rocky start, but ended well. That's what I would say, just in general, in short about this movie. Rocky start. Wouldn't you agree? Very rocky. Everything's on fire. You're really being thrown into what was happening at the end of the last movie. You might be wondering, why is everything on fire? Hold on. Let me backtrack and remember right. what was happening before. It really picks up practically in mid-scene. Yes. Yes. And let's see. We're in boats. We're on the water. You're in Lakeland and the dragon Smog with the voice of Benedict Cumberbatch. He plays two voices in this film. He plays the necromancer and Smog. Necromancer. Um, the necromancer. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, so the dragon smog is attacking Lakeland. And if you remember, you know, there was Bard, the human guy who was the guy. I can't even go into that whole backstory. Anyway, so he has got to vanquish the dragon. And then that leads us to the mountain full of gold where the dwarves are and, and who's going to own the, the gold. The rest of the movie is we're just standing guarding the gold at the mountain and fighting folks. Yes, that's fighting, true. Fighting, 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 but still just at the mountain of gold. And I, I in case it's not already clear. I was bored by this movie. You were bored. I was so bored. It was like watching somebody play a video game that I don't even like, and it just went on and on. Look, you... I made it to this level. All right, reboot, next army. Yeah. Yep. Look, we made it to this level. All right, reboot, next army. You didn't like it when um, when uh, Kate Blanchett turned to, or turned into the lead singer of Evanescence? <laughs> she, had, she had her, like, goth rock moment. Do you remember that? <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. That cracked nice me up. pop culture reference, Rafer. <laughs> nice, nice old pop culture reference, right? Does anyone even know who Evanescence is anymore? And, I mean, there are a couple of moments that, you know, might be magical like that. There are, I would say, at least one or two memorable fight sequences. There's one that's on a frozen waterway. That's a pretty that's good pretty scene. interesting. Some great camera work in that scene. It's, very, it's a really good 
Again, we're talking mechanics here. I mean, any, anything that's going to be good or bad about this movie is going to be mechanics. But that scene was um, long, drawn out, elaborate, fun, and engaging to me. Mm-hmm. But I would say most of the movie is exactly the opposite of that. Well, not true. Long and drawn out, yes. But engaging, no. <laughs> engaging, no, no. Not at all. And, and I, you know, but I will say I like the romance between um, – uh, the elf and the dwarf, the elf played by Evangeline Lilly and the dwarf played by, oh, uh, Aidan Turner, I think. Um, I like that romance, and that was actually added in. It's apparently not part of the book. And I I've, I've know some, fr- some friends of mine who are big fans of the book and are very angry that they threw that in. To me, I can see why. It gives you a little a little romance, a little heart, a little also, emotion. it's the only humanness in the whole story. Yes. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of little figurines battling. You yes. may as well not have any emotions or heart in the whole story. A lot of CGI in this movie. A lot so of CGI. Much CGI. So I, much of it. I thought ultimately Battle of the Five Armies was, you know, I think for fans it's going to be a good date. I think if you're not a fan – it's it, it, it's a you know, horrible date if you're not know, a fan. I don't think it's horrible. horrible. I just think it's kind of it's sort of meh. It's kind horrible. of a meh date. There's nothing to hold on to in this movie. Even yeah. that little bit of romance, you can't hold on to that enough. It's not going to carry you through. No, it won't. I again, much like Secret of the Tomb, it ends with a little pull at the heartstrings at the end, and and there's a little Very bit of tiny a tiny one. You, well, you kind of you learn all the people's all the different fates of all these characters, and and some of them are are kind of tragic and kind of moving um, and bring some kind of, uh, I don't know, larger lessons or something into them. And that was effective to me. But I have to admit, the rest of the film, not that great a date. Yeah, I'm sorry. This latest Hobbit is a horrible date for me. All right. I'm not surprised, Kristen. Maybe far away or maybe real nearby He may be pouring her car But you know what I'm very excited for? Tell me. Annie. Yes. You know I love me some Annie. I know you do. Remember last year at this time, maybe about 10 months ago, 11 months ago, I was talking about the movies I was most looking forward to this year. Annie was on my list. Of course. I know. I know. Yeah. And I know you're a Quavenzene Wallace fan. At least you loved her in Beasts of the Southern Wild. I Indeed. And I, th- I thought she was a, a great and inspired choice for this movie. And I love the fact that Jamie Foxx is playing... A Daddy Warbucks figure, no longer called Daddy Warbucks, now called William Stacks. Stacks. That's and good. And as his trusty assistant, we have Rose Byrne, who I always think is adorable. Yep. And then we also have, as kind of a re-jiggered Miss Hannigan, she's now a foster mother rather than the head of an orphanage, we have Cameron Diaz. Yeah, right. So, we all know the story of Annie, right? I think so. Do yeah. you want to tell us just briefly? Okay. We have Annie and we have the other little girls who are all parentless and in this case living with their foster mom, Miss Hannigan, up in Harlem. And she is not a very nice foster mom. No. The kids don't get any love. They have to spend a lot of time cleaning and uh, helping Miss Hannigan with her crumbling ego. She really, you know, she, she wanted to be beautiful and famous, but now she's just a foster mom living up in Harlem. Right. Annie, of course, gets a chance to leave this horrible world behind when Mr. Stacks rescues her one day. And then because he's running for political office and the rescue's caught on film, he's like, why don't you live with me and I'll be your temporary foster dad and we'll have lots of photo ops together for a while. Right. So she decides to play along with this. She likes living high on the hog and having a good life for a few months. But 
then, of course, emotions develop. And it doesn't just feel like a business deal. It feels like these two are actually touching each other's lives and giving each other things that they both need. Here is a clip. The inspector's here. Here, read a book. Braid her hair. Blow on this. Put this together. It's a kitty cat. What should I do? Pray. I've tried. It hasn't worked yet. Okay, showtime. You guys act well cared for. We love you, Miss Hannigan. Take it down a thousand. Nobody's going to believe that. (laughs) So, Kristen, since you're a bigger Annie fan than I am, and I'm not saying I disliked Annie, but I never saw the Broadway play. I only know the 1982 film. Um, But since you're a a bigger Annie fan than I am, how did you think this stacked up? Oh, stacked up. Stacked up. up. Well done, Rafer Guzman. Very nice. I will say in the first 20 minutes, as usual, I sobbed. Okay. It always makes me sad to see children in peril. You can show me pretty much much any movie you show me where children are in peril. I I just, I'm such a sucker for that. It really (laughs) just destroys me to see kids in trouble, kids who aren't loved. And so. And, and then in the first 20 minutes, three of my favorite songs are in the first 20 minutes, including Hard Knock Hard Life, Life, Maybe. Yes, is in Maybe's there. a great song. Maybe such a great song. It's the whole song of Annie looking out the window thinking, my gosh, what what's going on with those parents that, right. you know, placed me for, you know, that gave me up? Are, are they good people? I'm sure they must be wonderful. The only thing they did wrong was giving me up. Right. You know, and that's such a moving song. So, of course, I'm crying because of these great songs and so on. But quickly you realize... The new music that they put in this movie is not good. Well, there's only th- about th- three songs, maybe. And they're horrible. Well, they're, and, and well we should... one of them is not as horrible as the other ones. Yeah, one of them is not that bad. Um, it's uh, Sia and uh, Greg Kirsten. Sia is kind of the new indie rock, well, now mainstream pop darling, as is uh, Greg Kirsten, who's done producing for her and for others. Um, they wrote three new songs, one of which I think the one year we're both thinking of that we liked was Opportunity. Yes. And that's nice when a- when Annie is singing in front of a... At like the Guggenheim. A, yeah, at the, at the Guggenheim, <laughs> which, which, which Benjamin, which, excuse me, which William Stacks is going to uh, take over. I like the line where he says, you think the Guggenheims are all right with me taking their name off the building? Um, <laughs> so, you know, that was a nice, that was a nice scene, I thought, and that was a nice uh, song. Um is that your main issue? Is just those songs? No, it's not just the songs. It's also the, well, I think that the movie has so much padding in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I appreciate that they were trying to spend more time on the emotional development between the relationship between Stax and Annie in this one, yeah, some of those scenes just drag. Yeah. And some of the padding just felt unnecessary. I like the pace of the original Annie. Boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. We get from here to here to here and each scene leads to the next scene leads to the next scene. I didn't feel like that was really happening in this movie. There are moments it dragged and there are moments where unfortunately I felt maybe Quivenzene Wallace wasn't the best person for this job. Oh, really? Yeah. And part of it's because her singing voice is not spectacular. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It sounds like I a mean, kid. aside from Jamie Foxx, I wouldn't say anyone's singing voice in the film is spectacular. That's true. That's true. Jamie Foxx is actually a singer, though. Yeah. But so. I, well, and it is kind of funny to... <laughs> I don't know. For some reason, I always found it a little funny when... Um, when William Stacks would start singing, and he, he sounded like an R and B singer, <laughs> he had this kind of R and B smooth, smooth <laughs> kind of crooning voice. I just thought it was kind of funny. It was a little tough for me to get around that, but okay. So you just you felt that the pacing was off. I felt I don't know what was wrong with it. It was the pacing. It was the music. It was the padding, but it just didn't hit me in the gut like the other Annies have. I I have a theory about. 
what went wrong with this movie. And it's I think I hate hate to say this, but I think the blame lies with Will Gluck, who's the director. And Will Gluck is a guy who has directed a handful of comedies and uh, Fired Up, which is a a comedy that bombed, which but I kind of liked uh, Easy A, which you and I both liked. Yes. And then Friends with Benefits. Enough said. So he's directed these comedies. Comedies like that are usually these kind of mid-budget productions where visual style and sets and design don't really matter that much. You film these things. You try to get as many takes as you can, compile them together into something continuous. What you're mostly focused on is storyline and interaction between your stars. You're not really trying to jazz stuff up visually much with those things. You're just kind of splicing that stuff together. And the problem is Annie feels like that. And the whole time I was watching it, I kept thinking, where, where did all the money in this film go? There are no backup singers, no backup dancers. The sets are just like sets. They're mm-hmm. in a house or they're may as on well the be street. a situation comedy. It really may as well be. And there are no, you know, the, the, the sets don't move or do anything interesting. Um, when people are dancing around, they're kind of the, like the, the scene that really, that really uh, drove home what was the matter with this was um, I think I'm going to like it here. That number when, Ooh, Annie, when, Annie yeah. just, when Annie has just walked into the Stax mansion. And she's saying, I think I'm going to like it here. It's supposed to be this place of wonder and plenitude and this kind of eye-popping, you know, cornucopia of riches. And instead, it's a nice penthouse, but it's just her and Rose Byrne and Jamie Foxx just kind of walking around from room to room, maybe bouncing on a bed, maybe getting up on a table, dancing. The original movie... It's like Bugsy Berkeley in the original movie. Yes. It's, you have it's maids, butlers, right? Tons the, of staff making formations, doing right, whole dance sequences, right. high kicks up and down, the double wide stairwell, everything. There's nothing... The closest you get to that kind of stuff in Annie is there's a, there's a scene where there's a group of onlookers kind of tapping their toes in time. <laughs> and I kind of thought, you know, that's just not going to wash. Uh, that's just not going to wash. So I just felt like... Not that great a date. And, I, I, you know, actually, I'm going to retract that. I thought it was kind of a bad date. Oh, Annie. really? Yeah, I thought wow. it was kind of a bad date. Well, Rafer, I have to say, Annie, while not a good date, it was still the best date of this week for me. Oh, really? And that might just be because most of the movies were not so good this week. So <laughs> if you have to see be. one of the movies this week, see Annie. But that's not me advocating for good date status for Annie. Oh, all right. Coming up in a moment, we're going to be talking about all the hullabaloo around the interview, Seth Rogen and James Franco's new movie. We also have a little bit of listener mail, so stay with us. I'm Rafer Guzman. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. And this is Movie Date. And a reminder to all the movie daters out there, you can always reach us at facebook.com slash movie date podcast. You should just be friends or fans of us anyway, because we're always putting up pictures and fun articles and so on. And you can also call us anytime you want to at 5717 movies. Now, Rafer, let's get down to the real business this week. We have some serious business to deal with. Yes, Because this isn't just a review situation. This is a movie industry conversation we're about to have. Oh, it sure is. Um, We're talking, of course, about the interview. Um, Now, as everyone surely knows by now, this film has been 
pulled by Sony uh, after North Korean, from what the FBI is saying, North Korean hackers broke into the Sony system, threatened uh, some kind of attack on theaters if the, if theaters showed the film. Sony withdrew the film, and now uh, Sony is saying, "Oh no, actually, we are going to go ahead and release it after all." Where, how, we don't know. But at this point, the interview, major, major Christmas Day release has not been seen by the public and apparently I'm not sure if it ever will be at this point. Um, Kristen, you and I have seen it. So do you want to give us a little rundown about this film as if as if we all don't know? <laughs> well, James Franco stars as Dave Skylark. He's kind of a cross between Piers Morgan and some hack from Entertainment Tonight. And <laughs> gives, you know, high-profile celebrity interviews where the celebrities always break down and tell their secrets on his show. Eminem. Yeah. Rob admitting Lowe. that he's gay. Yep, Rob Lowe admitting <laughs> that he's bald. And his trusty producer is played by Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen, who also produced and directed this. And, and co-wrote. And co-wrote, yes. So Seth Rogen's all over this. Right. They find out that Kim Jong-un, leader of North Korea, is a big fan of their show. So they then suddenly get to interview Kim Jong-un. The CIA finds out and says, you know what, while you're there, if you don't mind, you know, he is an enemy. Would you mind, uh, you know, yeah. you know. Yeah. And um, so they go over there with this assignment from the CIA, but maybe they don't really want to kill him when they find out that he's a really personable guy. He likes basketball. He has tons of drugs and hot ladies everywhere. Yep. He can show you a good time. Here's a clip. The CIA would love it if you two could take him out. Hmm? Take him out. Take him out. Like for drinks? No, no, no. Take him out. Take out. Like to dinner? Take him out to a meal? Take him out. Like on the town? Party? No, uh, take him out. You want us to assassinate the leader of North Korea? Yes. What? Now, notably, I know we don't normally like to give spoilers away in this, but I'm just going to say something notable. It's a little here. late for that, it's I a think, a little at this bit point. late. They don't even assassinate Kim Jong-un. I just am going to get that out of the way. Our guys do not assassinate him. There's a coup with his head of propaganda. Okay, yes. And what they really do, I think, is much worse than assassinate him because if they assassinated him, he would be martyred. They don't do that. They get him to implicate himself and admit that he's not godlike, that he's actually an insecure daddy's boy. Right. And that maybe he just is, you know— not somebody worthy of being the leader of this nation. Right. He's a fraud. And then they kill him. They don't kill him. His own yes. people kill him. <laughs> uh, oh, his own? No, that's not true. No, because they his, kill his him. minister of propaganda, she's the one who pulls the trigger, right, with the bombs? In the tank? Yeah. It's her? Isn't it her? Well, I don't know. Well, they're all three of them in that tank, that's I think. True. That's okay. true. Okay. Well, the point being, uh, the, reason, <laughs> the reason we're spoiling this, again, if you, uh, in case you don't know... One of the main problems with this film has been the fact that Kim Jong-un is indeed killed on screen and he's blown up by a tank shell. And he's not just blown up. His head is seen to explode. It's engulfed in a a ball of flame. You see him sort of yelling in slow motion in pain. His skin is burning up. There are three or four burn marks on his skin as his skin erupts in flame. His head explodes. You can see chunks of skull, and then there's a giant ball of flame. And this, by the way, is the toned-down version. This is the version that Seth Rogen was asked to tone down. And 
I would say when you and I saw this, Kristen, um, this was before things really hit the fan with this movie. Things were clearly heating up, but this was well before things had really, really hit the fan. And I will say that scene really bugged me. That, oh. I found that scene um, not funny. I found it offensive and I found it mean-spirited. And I think this movie had the chance to go down a higher road and it didn't or couldn't or didn't have the brains to do so. I feel like you could have had a real political satire or at least something more of a screwball comedy, something where you have a leader who is – you've got this leader who is a kind of a pop culture uh, you know, sponge. He loves American pop culture. That's his dirty little secret. He really just wants to be a normal guy. And yet the film somehow couldn't find a way to – Bring a message of friendship, of reconciliation, of democracy, of freeing the country, some kind of understanding of this leader. We still had to, in this movie, go and kill him. I don't get the joke. I don't know why that's funny. And I don't know why the film thought that was so important, except that it would be just be kind of a, a knee slapper. And we're America. And that's funny. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, I think that you're perspective on this is excellent, Rafer, and I totally well, see where you're coming thanks. from on this. I do. but You disagree? I, I'm not saying I disagree. I, I, I mean, I think your point of view, it would have been smarter, but look at who we're dealing with here. We're dealing well, with Seth Rogen and James Franco. This isn't going to be Dr. Strangelove, well, unfortunately. No, that's true. And I think that, you know, with Seth Rogen and James Franco, we're going to have two bumbling guys. They're going to be drug addicts. They're going to be you know, characters sex and they're going to be themselves. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? <laughs> I just think that, you know, this is what their shtick is. This is who their yeah. characters are. And considering who we're dealing with and the dumb, you know, bodily function humor and all of that stuff. Yeah. Considering who we're dealing with, I still thought it was smarter than I was expecting. Really? Yeah. No just, kidding. And, and like I said, the main reason why I think if you get him to implicate himself, Kim Jong-un, that's a much smarter way to go. But that's not ultimately what ha- – that's not enough. That's not enough. That's not where the movie ends. It doesn't end with him being brought down low in front of his countrymen and you know everyone realizes that he's not actually a yes, god. Yes, there's still the blowing up that we you We still have to kill him. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't I – don't, that just seems so arrogant and pointless and meaningless to me. And it, I think with this movie – if this movie had even any inkling – that it was going to be a satire on America and America being kind of the bumbling, violent, dopey guys, it winds up being that anyway. anyway we, we, we are the bumbling, dopey, violent guys. We kind of, in a sense, walked into somebody else's country with this movie, I mean. We kind of walked into somebody else's country and killed their leader in a really nasty, gross, explicit way that we thought was hilarious. And I can totally understand, frankly, why... North Korea, a regime that I am not defending really in any way, but I can totally understand why they were so upset. I'm not saying they should have threatened to bomb us in our theaters, but I mean, wouldn't you be upset if, I mean, if, if I don't know who, I can't imagine who would do it, France, Spain, <laughs> if they made some kind of movie about this, if Iran or somebody made some movie about just blowing up the president's head and thought it was just not making a statement, just funny. You know, I... I can totally see where you're coming from. I can. But I also think that as ridiculous as it sounds here, because I'm not I'm, I'm, I'm not in 
favor of threats to world leaders, including our own. Okay, I would not anything hear. bad to happen to President Obama. We don't want to get any bomb threats. No, but uh, I guess my point in the end is if it's a bumbling, stupid comedy, then it's I, – I, I just think I wouldn't put that much weight into it. It's a dumb, stupid comedy. I think the weight – I think the weight has been put into it. I think think events have spoken. It has. They have. They've spoken for themselves. But in the end, are we calling this a good date or a bad date? Oh, I thought it was a terrible date. Oh. I thought the interview was was, – I thought it was – I thought it was – I think it was irresponsible and I think it went into into some territory that it was completely ill-equipped to go into. I think Seth Rogen and James Franco – have no idea what they're trying to say or do, and they just thought it would be funny. And I think they didn't think about anybody else's feelings or anyone else's repercussions. I think they had no larger message or point to make. And I think it's come back to bite them and all of us in the ass. Mm. That's what I would say. I, I think the interview was as dumb as you would expect, but smarter in moments than I was thinking it would be. Interesting. All right, so... What do the listeners have to say? We've gotten tons of mail about this, Rafe. Right, from, uh, right. And you, you know, although, all, uh, again, you know, people have not seen this, but uh, you know, people have an opinion, um, and I'm not surprised. Um, so here's one from Ray Hunter from St. Louis, Missouri. He says, "Who cares how the CIA reporters or anything slash anyone else is depicted? It is a film about an assassination plot against a living head of state. If one of the U.S. enemies had produced this project." With POTUS as the intended assassination target, it wouldn't matter how anything else in the movie was depicted. The U.S. outrage would be deafening, and it would be about an assassination plot. All right. And we have a slightly different point of view here from somebody who goes by the name Kimchi Taco from Pyongyang. Oh. American moviegoers should be sending emails and letters of thanks and praise to the North Korean hackers for saving them from this dreck. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You think she's really from Pyongyang? <laughs> All right. As usual, let's wrap things up with some trivia. Yes, before indeed. Before we go. All right. So last week, what did we ask, Rafer? Last week, we'd been talking about Top 5 with Chris Rock, in which he played a comedian, a sort of version of himself. Lots of movies out there have comedians in them, but not that many are about comedians. We found one movie about stand-up comedians. Here it is. Anyone from out of town? Here you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. But you, sir, where, where are you from? Green Bay, Wisconsin. There's nothing funny about that. Uh, uh, what are you doing uh, while you're here in town? You having fun? Until now. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's why this guy's all right. As usual, lots of right answers, but we can only select one from the mailbag. Hi, this is Denise from Fort Thomas. And the answer to your trivia question is, wait for it, Punchline with Tom Hanks. Thank you. Denise from Fort Thomas. Nice delivery. Beautiful. Nice nice comic timing there, Denise. (laughs) Very well done. (laughs) And what's this week's question? Well, well, this week, in honor of Annie, let's go all the way back to the late 1970s, early 1980s, when Annie was doing its first Broadway run. You know, some of those people in the original Annie on Broadway went on to have major careers, and at least one of them became a big movie star. Here's a clip of her back in the day singing one of the songs from Annie. Together at last, together forever, we're tying a knot, they never can sever. I don't need sunshine now to turn my 
that actress is very famous these days. That's She's a toughie. been in lots of movies. Do you recognize her voice? I didn't recognize her voice. Wow. Maybe some of our listeners will. So if you know who that is, give us a call at 5717movies. Or you can visit us at facebook.com slash moviedatepodcast. podcast.